This is the Waters and Harvey Show. I am Darren Waters. And I'm Marcus Harvey. A small place with a huge history. That's the way that Dr. Dan Pierce, professor of history at UNC Asheville, describes the community of Hazel Creek in his most recent book, Hazel Creek, The Life and Death of an Iconic Mountain Community. Join us for a conversation about this small place and its huge and fascinating history on today's show. Marcus and I will be back in a moment. Again, this is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters, and as usual, I'm happy to be here in the studio and very happy to be accompanied by my brother, Dr. Marcus Harvey. Marcus, here we are again. How are once you? Once again, I'm fine. It's good to be here with you once again. How are you? It is. It is. We're going to talk about a small place with a huge history, mm. and I'm looking forward to this conversation. Dan, uh, Dr. Dan Pierce has been a friend of mine for a long period of time, one of our colleagues at the university, a prolific writer. Um, I'm amazed at how much he's able to produce, um, especially with his busy schedule. Um, But I'm looking forward to talking about this community of Hazel Creek. Any familiarity with that community? Honestly, I I had not heard of Hazel Creek prior to preparing for this show. So um, I learned something. (laughs) In in Western, uh, I guess probably you could say in the far Western part of the state of North Carolina, um, it's not a community that I'm that familiar with as well, even though I am a native of this region of our state. But um, this book, this book, which we encourage you all to to go pick up. It is a very well-written book that tells a very fascinating story. And again, I'd like to just mention the name of the book. It's Hazel Creek, The Life and Death of an Iconic Mountain Community. And I'm telling you, Marcus, one of the themes that really emerges out of this book, while we may think that this is a small place, um, and I'm looking forward to hearing what Dan has to say about the history of this community. One of the things that struck me about reading this book is that this is a complex history and it reminded me again of just how complex the human historical experience has been yeah and I, th- I think that's an important point to make because oftentimes I think in common parlance um, people think when they think of history they think of a you know a, a single story or a linear story that um, for the most part folks are in agreement Mm -hmm. Um, about uh, but oftentimes that's anything but the case and I'm also reminded of and I mentioned this 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 um, this this person before but I'm reminded of a TED talk given by the Nigerian author Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie Mm -hmm. entitled the danger of a single story Mm -hmm. and you know the talk is all about um, uh, how you know uh, it's it's it can be dangerous, even violent, um, towards people uh, to not acknowledge the complexity of their own story. Right. Um, and, and also talking about the importance of acknowledging the, the complexity of our own narratives. Right. Uh, you know, because even our own narratives are, are not are not singular in nature. <laughs> they, they're not. So we, we like it's an important to be, point to make. Yeah. yeah, I try to avoid the complexity of my life. But, you know, <laughs> but sometimes, good luck with yeah, that. Sometimes it actually helps me to tell people, well, it's very complex. <laughs> you know. <laughs> But we like for things to be, you know, neatly (laughs) categorized in black or white, Mm -hmm. and sometimes it just isn't. And what uh, struck me as I was reading Dan's book again is, you know, I've often talked about the relationship that I had with Dr. Franklin, Dr. John Ho Franklin. And Dr. Franklin had really encouraged me to to listen to people. And he said, if you listen, you will find out that people have had some very unique Mm -hmm. experiences. Mm -hmm. He said, you know, yes, you think that you're the only person who has struggled, but there have been other people, Mm -hmm. other groups of people who have struggled as well. And we're talking about here with Dan's book, um, looking at not just Western North Carolina, but talking about Southern Appalachia as well, which has a unique history and of how people 
people who have actually talked about Southern Appalachia and what they've said. I think Dan will address that in this conversation. But that in and of itself is complex as yeah, well. And, and yeah, I think it's important to remember that human experiences are messy. They're messy experiences. Uh, and But that doesn't mean that we can't learn something from these experiences, right? right? And I think one of the things that complicates that messiness is that um, there are certain, like, uh, writers may come along with who you know with who are carrying certain assumptions about a certain set of people, and they they publish books, they publish articles about these people, mm-hmm. uh, which may or may not be accurate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so the messiness is compounded. Mm-hmm. So they have to sort of sift through the misrepresentations to get at okay, what was the original messiness, <laughs> right? And right. what can be learned from that? Right. So, so these yeah. are some of the questions I think that, that will come up yeah. in the course of this conversation today with Dr. Dan Pierce, and I think that he will help us explore uh, and 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 consider the context in which this particular community developed Hazel Creek. So Marcus and I, we're going to step out in just a minute, and we'll be right back with this conversation with Dr. Dan Pierce. Again, this is the Waters and Harvey Show here at Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville, North Carolina. Again, we are so happy that you're staying here with us for this very, I think, rich conversation that we're going to have with Dr. Dan Pierce. But before we go into talking to Dan, I I have to, you know, in his book, in a copy of this book, it's got a a small section here about the author, and I have to just read from it. I mean, I talked about how he has, uh, he's a prolific writer. Um, I'm hoping that I can, at some point in time in my own career, I can match the, the, um, the level of writing that Dan has done over the course of his career. But I do want to read it because there's something that he says in here that he and I'm sure that Dan wrote this himself that um, that I just want. I have to get this in. But it says Dr. Dan Daniel S. Pierce is an avid hiker and biker who has spent who has spent almost 50 years of his life in Western North Carolina. He is the author of The Great Smoky Mountains. That's one of his first books from The Great Smoky Mountains, From Natural Habitat to National Park. That was published in 2000. He's also the author, and many of you may know uh, him by this particular book, but Real NASCAR, White Lightning, Red Clay, and Big Bill Bill Finance, uh, Big Bill France, uh, published in in 2010 by the University of North Carolina uh, uh, press and also the corn, corn from a jar moonshining in the Great Smoky Mountains, which was published in 2013. He has served as a professor of history and recently, most recently, and now uh, no longer the NEH distinguished professor in the humanities. He served his term in that position, a well-deserved position. But he also considers himself. This is the part that I love: the resident professional hillbilly at University of North Carolina at Asheville. So Dan. It is good to have you here in the audience with us, the resident hillbilly at UNC Asheville. (laughs) Thank you for stopping in and coming in and have this conversation with us. Thank you, Darren Marcus, for having me on the show. Congratulations. I always want to start out by just congratulating you on this recent book. Um, The number of publications you've had uh, leads me to think that you really enjoy writing. So is that is that fair to say? Dan? Yeah, I do. I, I, I kind of feel like uh, my I've accomplished something in a day when I uh, when I write. That's that's important to me. Which which is something that any teacher who ever taught me from kindergarten to um, undergraduate would would be amazed uh, because I was so bad at it uh, for so long. But I had some great teachers along the way, and I, I really do. Uh, 
I yeah. feel that as kind of a calling now, you know, which mm-hmm. is really weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was interesting because you answered my second question because I was wondering if it had always been that way that you enjoyed writing. I mean, I, you know, I kind of fall in the same category with you. It hadn't always been something that I enjoyed doing. And I think we should point out for the audience that we kind of have all three of us in here have a shared experience in that we are all the, the, the children of ministers, right? <laughs> and somehow survive that experience. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and Dan, so, you know, you, so you're an outdoorsman. You have a love of nature. Um, is there any connection, relationship between your interest in the outdoors and your recent decision to examine the Hazel Creek community and, it, and, its, and its history? It's any back to, I believe, the 1830s. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It was in terms of white settlement. Yeah. But, uh, uh, yeah, uh, yes, uh, partly. I, I, I was actually invited to do this by the publisher, and so, but, but it was something that I immediately agreed. One of the things that uh, I have been privileged in my career – uh, if you look at the types of things that I've done, you know that I that I get to go um, hiking and fishing in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, or go to stock car races, or hang out with moonshiners, um, and call that research. And so my wife, uh, you know, doesn't think I work at all, you know. But uh, uh, but I do, and I think that's one of the great things, one of the great pleasures of teaching in a place like UNCA, mm-hmm. is that. Um, you know, I'm encouraged to do research, but in terms of kind of fitting into a narrow box and saying, okay, you have to research this very narrow period, you know, this very kind of esoteric thing. Um, you know, we don't we don't really have that restriction, you know, that we can do what mm-hmm. we want, really. And so that's and so I I believe in doing fun things. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, Dan, I w- I w- would like to ask you just for our readers, so uh, listeners um, here, those who might not. Uh, be familiar with Hazel Creek, the Hazel Creek community. Where is it located? Can you tell us where it is and tell us what this place is like? Okay, so Hazel Creek is in the southwest uh, corner of the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, and it's on the the north shore of Fontana Lake in, in Swain County. And um, uh, it uh, up until the, the Fontana Lake was created in the uh, in the mid 1940s, it was um, you know there, roughly the watershed of Hazel Creek, which flowed at that point into the Little Tennessee River, uh, right there, and then on down into the Tennessee River in Tennessee. So, uh, but it's um, as I I put it in the book, um, it's never been easy to get to Hazel Creek, and it's it's still not. I mean, you have to uh, today to get there, you have to hike about 12 miles. Or take a shuttle across the lake from Fontana, or um, or what I usually do is is um, take one of my brother's canoes and paddle across the lake, you know, because that doesn't cost anything, but uh, and it's a lot of fun. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So so then you've given us a sense of sort of the geography of the Hazel Creek community, but uh, beyond geography, can you say a bit about uh, what specifically is is unique about this community, and secondly, uh, what makes it worthy of a book length project? That's a, that's a great question, and and, uh, and and I think that's one of the things that I've immediately attracted it uh, me to the project because it does. There are so many larger issues that come up with Hazel Creek. Um, for one, people look at Hazel Creek. Hazel Creek is almost a, uh, because of its location is almost a um, shorthand 
uh, when you say Hazel Creek, is shorthand for Appalachian isolation. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that comes from the work. And, and one of the really unique things um, about Hazel Creek is that in 1903, a very strange individual by the name of Horace Kephart showed up. Uh, he had fairly recently been fired from his position as the head of the Mercantile Library in St. Louis. One of the, it was the largest library at the time west of the Mississippi. He was a, a scholar, a Renaissance scholar. He was a scholar of the American West. He was a firearms expert. He was a camping and woodcraft expert. Uh, had published numerous articles. Uh, by that point, very well known uh, a scholar and librarian. And uh, his life kind of fell apart, and uh, he his family uh, left, and then he ended up kind of looking at a map and looking for places where he didn't see roads or railroads or anything like that, and he ended up in what he called the back of beyond at mm. that time in Hazel Creek. And his book that he wrote based on that experience, Our Southern Highlanders, is still a classic in literature on the Southern Appalachian region. And uh, it is an important book, and I encourage people to read, to read it, but it's got some problems mm-hmm. with it. And one of the big problems is is that the way he really mischaracterizes the people of the region as being um, kind of locked in the oh, 16th, 17th century and li- living these old ways. Uh, and he really missed a lot of things. And so um, – but, but people – Again, they kind of use Hazel Creek as kind of a shorthand for that notion about Appalachia and and isolation and backwardness and things like that. And one of the important things, even before Kephart came, was that Hazel Creek was not a product of the the Hazel Creek that uh, was was really a a product of its own times. Mm -hmm. It was a product of the Industrial Revolution because even before Horace Kephart got there – the Industrial Revolution had come. Uh, there were major timber operations. There were actually two copper mines in the community, um, and the place was really going. When when Kephart, the and again, this is kind of the complexity of history and the importance of context, because in understanding Kephart, you got to look at that context and say when Kephart came in, they had had this boom. In the 1890s, when he arrived, they were in a period of bust. Both the mines had closed and the timber operation mm-hmm. had shut down. And so people were living um, you know, more of kind of a subsistence lifestyle. The people that remained, a lot of people right. had left. And the other thing that a lot of people in Hazel Creek um, um, resented is about – I think it's about seven out of about 20 chapters in that book are devoted to moonshining. And so uh, – and a lot of people were moonshining right. uh, at the time because moonshining has always been kind of a, uh, an insurance policy in many ways for, for people. But – and then and then Kephart is there for a few years, and then he leaves because a major timber operation that built railroads, community came in of over a 1,000 people. It boomed again until they cut all the timber out, and then there was another big live. bust, and it kind of returned to that kind of isolated status. Then another boom when the when TVA came in and built the Fontana Dam. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, everyone – it was the ultimate bust because then everyone was forced to move at that mm-hmm. point. Yeah. Now, then, as, as, you, as you talk about Horace, uh, Horace Kephart's mischaracterization of the Hazel Creek community, I'm, I'm reminded of a sort of bigger issue in the history of sort of Western thought known as Orientalism, right? This notion that 
um, non-Western um, societies are sort of frozen in time um, to be studied conveniently by sophisticated, enlightened, modern, progressive Western researchers. Um, could you say a little bit, if you can, about what factors you think might have influenced Kep Hart's mischaracterization mm-hmm. of, of this community? I, I think there are a number of factors. One, um, and one thing I want to make clear is that the stories that Kephart tells in our Southern Highlands, I believe, are true, and were real experiences that he had. But um, the thing about like anything else, he was very selective in the stories that he told. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, for instance, he didn't um, he didn't talk a lot except uh, for uh, his role as a bear as a pretty well-known bear hunter about a guy named Granville Calhoun, who's one of my favorite people in the book, who lived to, I think, 103 uh, and moved into Hazel Creek in the 1880s. And he did. He was kind of the Forrest Gump in some ways. He was there at kind of every important thing. You know, if you remember that part of the movie where <laughs> right. he, you know, Forrest Gump shows up at everything important along the way. And, uh, and, and that's the way Granville Calhoun was. But Granville Calhoun was someone who was very progressive politically. He was big on public education. He was big on uh, improving transportation in the community. He was a businessman. In fact, uh, uh, a friend who has done a lot of research on the area told me that that Calhoun was one of the earliest investors in the first bank in Swain County. You know, Mm -hmm. that doesn't quite fit that that model, you know, of of, of the community. And there were a lot of people in the community like that, you know. There were people like that 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 Horace Kephart talks about. So part of it is, you know, again, looking at that context is that Kephart, one, he's making a living as a writer. Mm-hmm. And so he wants to write stories that people – it's not like real interesting to write about Granville Calhoun, you know, investing in banks. Mm-hmm. You know, it's great to talk about uh, Quill Rose, you know, these moonshiners and these bear hunters and people like that, you know, and people kind of living this – Hard scrabble existence, right. and so you know a lot of it's just a matter of, um, and you know those were the popular stereotypes, the thinkers of the area, uh, William Goodall Frost, the uh, right. president of Berea College, you know, was a friend of Kephart's, and it really kind of fit in with his kind of narrative of this, of this, um, these kind of forgotten people, oh, you right. know, yeah. in the area. So. Um, so, Dan, you know, thinking about – because hearing you tell the story, especially about um, industrialization in this area, copper mines and timber uh, timber mills that are there, it you know, it sounds like a common story to other areas, a, a common cycle, a boom and bust. So it's, you know, not so unique in that sense, right? Uh, but – what what strikes me is that these images that have been created of of this region and of Southern Appalachia as a whole. Now the research is changing. Your your research is contributing to uh, overturning some of these these um, some of these older stereotypes. How is that going? Where where are we? Does that does that make sense? Where are yeah. we with this in this process now? Are our Southern Appalachians finally getting the, the opportunity to define who they are for themselves. Yeah, uh, to a certain extent, uh, you know, and, and and just a couple of things here again, uh, you know, because that has been a problem, you know, because Southern Appalachianists for so long been defined by people on the outside, and and, and it is, it is very similar uh, in lots of ways to colonial experience because you know you have outside investors and mm-hmm. capital coming in and um, 
exploiting the region and the people and the and the benefits are for the most part flowing out. People do, you know, um, at the same time, you know, there is a good bit of agency, you know, here when people like Granville Calhoun and others who took advantage of the situation and benefited from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, but it, is, it it is very similar in lots of ways, and there are a lot of Appalachian scholars who've looked at this and talked about um, uh, Southern Appalachian region as um, as as a as a colony, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that uh, that has been um, exploited for its resources, and and it's still true to a certain extent. Um, the and and again, you are getting more voices of people in Appalachia uh, speaking to the world and trying to find. Although we can't, I mean, it, recently there's a lot of controversy right now because of the um, the work of J.D. Vance and the book Hillbilly Elegy and there's some people who are kind of on the inside of Appalachian Studies who just uh, if you say that name, they just you know their hair catches on fire. You know they just go crazy mm-hmm. because they think that he has mischaracterized the region. You know, but he is someone from the region. It's defined. So again, the, I mean, it's always a struggle. And again, that's where you get into, into that difficulty. That one story, they, there isn't one story, no and it's very much a contested story um, uh, to this day. Yeah, but, but I think I think sort of going back to Kephart, perhaps what he what he discovered was that the Appalachian stereotype was profitable. Yes, <laughs> right. Oh, like, right. Like as are many other oh, stereotypes gosh. in That's this country. True. Well, yeah, it still right. is, and I always tell people, I say, you know, it's 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 almost funny in some ways, uh, and I, uh, you know, you don't know whether to laugh or cry sometimes about mm-hmm. stuff. But all you, I tell people, all you have to do is to turn on the uh, cable TV and you get, you know, more than your fair share of Appalachian stereotypes, you know, from snake handlers and moonshiners and ginseng hunters, and, and it's just, it's, it's crazy, and again, it just continues to reinforce. The thing that surprises me most about that, particularly living in Asheville, is the people that moved to this region who really believe this stuff. <laughs> you know, it's like they're afraid to leave the city limits, you know, because they're going to hear banjo music and, uh, you know, something out of deliverance is going to happen to them. You know, so. <laughs> well, Dan, one of the things that you before the show ends, I wanted to get you to address is that you write in the book um, and writing about this community that it has a powerful hold on many people. Can you talk a little bit about that? Why does this community have a powerful hold on people? I think a lot of that has to do with the way that the community effectively ended um, when, and again, that gets into the whole uh, colonial issue in some ways. Um, in the 1940s, uh, TVA uh, came in and condemned all the land uh, because they were building a dam uh, during World War II. Um, and I love the there was a billboard that they put up and said because the, the dam was primarily built to um, – provide electricity for the Alcoa Aluminum Company over in, in East Tennessee. Mm. And they didn't know it at the time, but also for Oak Ridge for the development of the atomic bomb. And so they, But they had a big sign up, big uh, billboard up that said, we are building a dam to generate the electricity to make the aluminum to build the bombers to bomb the bastards. So this is in the middle of World War II. And so um, – and so, I mean, again, because it was a war, they were able to do it very quickly, you know, uh, and condemn people's land. And then by 1944, all the people were forced uh, forced to move out because the road was 
cutoff that provided access to the area, and, and it became part of the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. So it's really a, a fascinating place because there are all these vestiges of, of human activity there. Uh, in what's now pretty much a wilderness, right. but I think that you know that kind of loss that people experienced gave them a powerful attachment to the place, mm-hmm. which carried over into the whole road to nowhere controversy, right. which really dominated the last fifty years or so in relation to Hazel Creek. Right. This the story of displacement is such a powerful story in in American history in general, and you hear that in so many conversations that we even we even we have with people here in the city. But that is, I think, a, a very powerful component of, of this book, and um, one of the more compelling parts of the story that you that you tell here. So then I'm you know uh, wondering as well. You just mentioned the road to nowhere. Um, what is the latest with that? I think that there have been some recent developments with regard to this. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? Yeah, this has been a, a story that's been going on since 1943 when when these people were uh, – the land was condemned. They were forced to move. There was an agreement between the county and the federal government and the state of North Carolina that they would replace the road that was covered by the lake. And, um, and so this dragged out for years and years and years uh and there were you know people that wanted to build the road jesse hounds got really involved in it charles taylor and the representative in western north carolina to try and get the road built but really by the 1960s with the growth of the environmental movement it, there was just no way it was ever going to happen one the expense had skyrocketed by that point to build a road like that and then the environmental damage so finally in 2010 a settlement was made where the government agreed to pay 52 million dollars to swain county to give up the claim on the road mm-hmm. And uh, at that point, they uh, over the last few years uh, since then, they've uh, they're about uh, I think about uh, what eighteen million dollars or so that, that went to Swain County into a trust fund for them, but it really looked like they were never going to get the money uh, because every time any of the congressmen or senators from North Carolina introduced a bill, it just died. Uh, until you know, it's kind of one of these things. Well, it just can't happen until it. it and, and this is the way history works in such surprising ways that things cannot happen until they do. <laughs> and all of a sudden, the uh, Secretary of the Interior uh, Zinke said, "Okay, here's thirty-four million dollars. I don't know where it came from, but um, last Saturday, uh, the." Uh, Zinke uh, presented a check to Swain County for $34 million to pay off that claim. And so it's, it's just it's so strange because there's been so much agitation over the years and so much energy and passion built into this that all of a sudden it's just like, you know, it's it, it's just kind of like you had this epic battle going on and everything, and then all of a sudden it just ends and everybody goes home. You know, it's just it's it's really strange, but it's settled, and I'm I'm thrilled for Swain County that this issue this has been hanging out there since 1943 has finally been settled. Right. Well, Dan, it is a compelling story, and it's been a wonderful conversation with you just to talk about it, and I hope it will stimulate our listeners to go out and get this book and just read about this particular community. Marcus and I like to spend time talking about marginalized communities. Well, this is a, a community that has been marginalized in in its own unique way. So we want to thank you for coming in and talking with us today. And Marcus and I are going to step out for a quick minute. We'll be back in a second. 
Well, thank you all for joining us today for this conversation with Dr. Dan Pierce about his new book about the community of Hazel Creek. And we mm-hmm. hope you've enjoyed this conversation, Marcus. It's been a compelling story. It has been. And I think one of the important points that Dan's book underscores, and this is un- this is an unhappy point, um, but the point is that, you know, the theme of displacement, the theme of displacement mm-hmm. um, occupies a prominent place in American social history. Right. Um, and this is, you know, an unhappy thing to realize, but I think it's important to realize. It this. is. Mm-hmm. And also, Marcus, you know, thinking about the complexity of the past and, mm-hmm. and understanding. And I hope that Dan has used a word that I've heard him use quite often in lectures he's giving, given, and it's about empathy, empathizing with each other. And I think understanding the complexity of history will help us to, to uh, empathize with each other. So yeah. once again, Marcus and I want to remind you all that the Waters and Harvey Show is produced at Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville, North Carolina. And you can listen to our podcast on BPR.org, on the BPR mobile app, and on iTunes and Google Play. Follow us and get in touch on Facebook and Twitter. And Marcus and I will look forward to talking to you next time. Take care.